interest in the show, just go to pgttcm.com, check out all of our cool t-shirts and stickers. Heck, we even got some shower curtains in there. Keep clean, look cool, have cool stickers to put on stuff. Join us on Patreon and get a free sticker. Or don't. It's up to you. There we go. Okay. Hey, everyone. It's me, DB, and to my virtual right, as always, Farmer Dave. Farmer Dave, how the heck are you doing this week? I am doing well. Good, good. How's, how are the goats doing? Enjoying uh, life on Swan Island? They are, they are getting used to it. Goats do not like change. Yeah. Hey, would you like a trivia uh, fact that nobody outside of the Portland area would care about? Sure, go for it. In 1844, when the U.S. Exploratory Expert, or whatever team it was called, went out uh-huh. and came here, yeah, they named Swan Island Willow Island. Oh. Yes. And that Swan Island was connected to the mainland in 1927 to make room for the airport. They were going to put the, the runway on it. Uh, I mean, Internet. that's where the first airway, runway was. Huh. Now that we've lost all non-Oregonians. <laughs> I have a cool trivia uh, bit that I learned the other day. And I want to say it's 1947, but it could be a little bit earlier or a little bit after. But I say around 1947 in Portland, Oregon, the portable chainsaw was invented. Cool. <laughs> I think I had heard that, but I did not know the year, so that's pretty good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, so yeah, speaking of uh, things that can cause terror, we're talking about all kinds of terrible, horrible, scary things today at a place that can cause terror uh, if you are not prepared. Um, Let's hit that theme song, and we'll be back in a sec. You're listening to KZOM, only on public radio. This week we are talking about the spiraling worm, Antezcatlipoca, uh, one from Congo, the other from Mexico. And in the uh, second or the final half of the show, we'll be talking about the astral planes. So I'm excited about that part. I haven't talked about the astral planes in forever. Well, good. Yeah. Good, it's time to get our astral on. <laughs> yeah, get our astral together. Um, yeah, no, so uh, I guess this is the part where we talk about uh, Call of Cthulhu stuff. We talk about the Cthulhu mythos. We talk about uh, the RPGs, the books. We, 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 uh, we talk about all kinds of fun stuff like that. 
Um, and I guess this week we're talking about the spiraling worm. Are, 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 you, are you familiar much with the spiraling yes, worm? Yes, I have read the spiraling worm. Oh, that's It's a book. That's, Good. That's it, good. It's a book. It is written, and so I'm much more familiar with the book. Than, and, and I have to admit, I read it like 12 years ago, and I still uh -huh. haven't. I've got to reread it. But it's uh, it is uh, released by Chaosium. Okay. And it is basically Delta Green that's not Delta Green. Oh, so interesting. So it, it's it's spy special forces, uh -huh, and uh -huh. each of the stories, so. Almost think of it like a, a, a TV series. Mm -hmm. And each of the stories is a pretty much self-contained short story, but they're all related. Okay. So each chapter basically has a beginning, ending, and close, but they all tie in. Uh, and it was written by um, uh, David Conyers and uh, John Susson. Okay. And it is... Uh, it's extremely. I mean, it's it makes sense that Chaosium printed this. Uh, it's obviously designed for a game format, uh -huh, uh -huh. Um, and it, 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 it's obviously um, Delta Green inspired. Yeah, um, no. Is it is it linked to Secrets of the Congo, or is that uh... so? So Secrets of the Congo is. Um, is a actual game book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and they may have used the term, so there may be, there may be, um, uh, there may be the same sort of. It may be used twice, but so when I think of this, and I don't remember there being as much an entity in the spiraling worm uh -huh. uh, as well. I guess there was at the end. Oh yeah, and you know what? I'm going to take that back as I look at my notes in the book. The final. The final chapter did take place in the Congo. Okay. So they All right. probably did take some of it. And I've got Secrets of the Congo somewhere, but sure. um, um so they they probably did take it from this. But at the end they fight the the cult of the spiraling worm. Um and you could it, it, it's obviously I mean, there's a little bit and, and it's a good story. So anything I'm saying, don't say this as a tax on it. Mm -hmm. But there's there's a little bit of author avatars, I think, and there's definitely I think uh, some favorite playing characters. I am sure that the the main characters, and it's there's three of them. Yeah. Uh, there's uh, an American spy, a, an Australian special forces, and, a, and an English spy, and and I can almost guarantee you that they started out as player characters. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, no, uh, Dan Harms says uh, that the spiraling worm was uh, in a temple of Aknut, uh, imprisoned a long time ago deep in the jungle, and a avatar that can uh, devour reality has a cult led by the masked uh, Skangrazu uh, that seeks to free the spiraling worm. So. Yes, and I'm pretty sure that's what's on the cover of the the book. I don't know if you ever seen the the cover, but it's got like this Mr. Clean with an AK. Yeah, uh, yeah. And a and a attack helicopter, and, and I'm pretty sure that's the the creature uh, or the masked uh, guy on the cover of the book. And like I said, I, it's a good book. I, I liked it. Okay. 
cool, cool. Um, then we've got Tezcatlipoca, a man with dark skin with a smoking mirror in place of his feet. Uh, also one of the Aztec's most important deities, A Resurrection of Time by Johnson is the original Source. And a game, which is a game, uh, game supplement there, mm-hmm. and it's kind of I saw, I've actually read something that was sort of uh, interesting that Lovecraft mentions Aztec or Mesoamerican gods and two things I think. Uh-huh. One is the uh, electric executioner, mm-hmm. and the other is one of the one of the. Uh, uh, Revisions he did, uh, I think maybe it was the thing in the museum or something. Mm-hmm. But but he never and and I can never pronounce this guy's name. I mean, I, it took me three seasons to pronounce the Nalathotep. Uh, so I've always called him the Smoking Mirror. Okay, uh, all right. But smoking, it doesn't appear. This would almost think as a ripe, you know, for a, some sort of character in a Lovecraft story. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And um, especially, I know who else we don't see it. I mean, I mean, I know we see it, don't see it in a lot of people. But uh, I don't think he appears in Robert Barlow's writings, which is interesting because Robert Barlow, though he only gets, I believe, a master's degree, is considered one of the experts in the 40s and early 50s before he dies of um, Aztec codexes and... Mm -hmm. Mesoamerican mythology. But yeah. the truth is, other than the stuff that he wrote with Lovecraft, I just haven't really gotten that much into uh, to um, Barlow. But So I think that he, he, he's right for stories. Uh, but I think we only see him in uh, the role-playing game right now. Okay. All right. Yeah. But no, yeah uh, it's, it's... it's described in the, the Popol Vuh, I believe, which is... Mm-hmm huge, giant, almost hieroglyphics book. Okay. Uh, oh, and it's a, re- a real book. So it, it really is a Mesoamerican or Aztec in uh, DNA. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's it's uh, the part that I have a, a, a like a weird part understanding is smoking mirror in place of one of his feet. It's That's always kind of been this thing that's like, I don't I don't, does that mean that, like, his foot is in a puddle of smoke mirrored material? It's it's like, is it made of a smoky mirrored glass? It's, is, is it look like a glass shoe with smoke on the inside? I, I don't get it. <laughs> and, and what I think even maybe makes him more of a sort of a, a Lovecraftian creature mm-hmm. is in the original stories. I think he's in the original Mesoamerican stories. I think he's invisible. Okay. And that's okay. only, only what he looks like if he's revealed, which is really Lovecraftian. Yeah. Yeah. A man with dark skin with a smoking mirror in one of its feet in place of one of its feet. That's, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> it breaks my brain. Which uh, is very Lovecraftian. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. 
Um, I have no idea what the spiraling worm looks like, but I can I can I can think of I can Im- imagine what a spiraling worm uh, <laughs> yeah. is. But Tezcatlipoca uh, and its foot just I don't know it doesn't make sense to me. It's like. So is his foot like smoky mercury or <laughs> does it look like it's in a puddle? <laughs> yes. Yes. Anyway. All right. Enough about uh, Aztec God's feet. Um, I think there's a website for that, but we're not going to go to that. Uh, what we are going to go into It, it is, is the new Tarantino movie. <laughs> <laughs> Smoking and feet. Yeah, that does sound like a Tarantino movie. Um, Yeah, what we're going to go into next is the break. You'll find out sooner than I know right now if there's a middle part, and then we're going to talk some D&D. There will be. Oh, cool. Uh, D&D on. Okay. We'll talk about D&D on D&D, and we'll see after that. So what's the middle part this week, Dave? Uh, Ultra Terrestrials 2. Ultra-terrestrials. Well, I think I'm going to end up putting both of them because I forgot to put it on last week. <laughs> oh, well, then put in Ultra-terrestrial 1 and then... Okay, cool, cool. And All then right. we can do Ultra-terrestrials 2 uh, if I don't get a uh, okay. an interview. Works for me, works for me. All right, cool, cool. Hey, everyone. Uh, we have the middle section here right now where Dave is talking about ex- Ultra-terrestrials, Ultra-terrestrials part one. Yeah. And uh, then next week, uh, we will have part two. Uh, thank you so much, everyone, for listening to PGTTCM, People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. You can find us everywhere. You'll find social media. Um, we're on the Facebook. We're on the YouTube. We're on the Instagram. And if Twitter still exists, we're still there. And, yeah, we'll see you after the Dave's part and after the break. Yes. Thank you once again for listening to People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. You can help show your support by going to the show notes and following any of the links that'll tell you how to support the show, how to support our guests, and thank you to all of our guests who you can find in the show notes. Rate, review, subscribe, and remember, patrons get priority access to asking us questions, suggesting topics, even... I don't know, uh, submitting stuff. Actually, you don't have to be a patron to submit anything. That's how Dave got on the show, and that's how you can get on the show, too. It's the People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. Rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends. Thank you for listening. Back to the show. Welcome to Stranger. Hi, I'm Rob Whiten from the Innsmouth Book Club. Join me and my fellow guide, John Chadwick, as we take you on a fortnightly tour of Innsmouth. We visit places such as the Picture House, the Library and Innsmouth Museum to discuss all aspects of weird fiction, whether it be book, film, music, TV or art. As well as that, we stop over at the Gilman House to have a chat with a resident guest that includes authors, artists, musicians, in fact, Lovecraftian creatives of all types. 
You can find our free shows on Patreon, and there you can also sign up as a patron, which brings you bonus content, plus a monthly PDF copy of Innsmouth News, which features articles, author spotlights, all the latest news and reviews, and more. You can find us at patreon.com forward slash BC. We hope to see you soon, because remember, Innsmouth isn't just a place, it's a state of mind. It's me, Dave, Farmer Dave. And uh, so I'm not really talking to anyone today. Well, I'm talking to you. Thank you for pointing that out and correcting me. That was really nice the way you said it, too. It was polite. And, well, anyways, so I don't have a guest today. So we're going to talk about whatever I want. So we're going to talk about something that is tangentially uh, Lovecraftian, and that is the ultra-terrestrial theory. Basically the concept that things that we see supernatural, especially flying saucers, aliens, they're all something that is either from this Earth and is super powerful or from another dimension and that they're not the most common belief extraterrestrial. Now, in a lot of ways that there are these seemingly all-powerful beings that are so reality-warping and mind-altering, they seem completely compatible with the Cthulhu mythos and Lovecraft. But we're going to discuss a little bit about that. And before we can discuss what the ultra-terrestrial hypothesis is, we got to say what it is not. And it's not the extraterrestrial hypothesis. And so let me kind of break this down. The extraterrestrial hypothesis is that these advanced, probably older, intelligent races are traveling the vast, you know, cosmic space, comes to Earth, and performs genetic experiments and others, maybe warns us about the use of atom bombs, and go along their, their merry way without making contact with us as a society or a race. Now, I have problems. I'm basically a agnostic when it comes to the occult and, uh, you know, things of extraterrestrial origin absolutely if there are billions and billions of stars it's just uh, there has to be other races but just other planets have to have some sort of life form and it's fair enough to say that some of them have probably evolved and are intelligent 
That said, I just find the distance that has to be traveled and the amount of energy as just very, very unlikely that we would ever make physical contact with these other races. To me, the answer to the, the Fermi paradox is that the reason that we have not seen contact or been in contact with alien races is just the distance. It's just too far. The amount of energy needed to travel, it just it can't be overcome. Now, I absolutely get that maybe not in my lifetime, but within the next generation probably, there's going to become some young punk astronomer or astrophysicist or just mathematician who is going to do to Einsteinian physics what Einstein did to Newtonian physics and just tear it apart. Un, you know, just completely off wild guess. I've always just imagined this hypothetical student being a woman from India, so take that future. But I get that that's going to happen someday. But until then, until I can see it myself, the theory of relativity has been, you know, pretty much backed up and accepted for over a hundred years now. And I just find it very impossible, no, very unlikely, excuse me, that the issue of distance can be overcome in the extraterrestrial uh, hypothesis. Here's the other thing that I'm going to have with the extraterrestrial hypothesis. Sanitize for our protection. And so we all have this idea of what a extraterrestrial encounter would be like. Small gray beings are going to come down in disc-shaped objects. They will abduct someone. They will perform experiments. They may create children and then release them in some sort of galactic capture and release program. That is sanitized. If you really listen to some of these stories that these people are telling, and I'm not saying they're crazy. I, I honestly think they're experiencing something. I don't know what, but this thing that they're reporting is not what we see in X-Files or in, you know, our literature or, you know, close encounters of the third kind. These are sanitized events. So we're going to see just really weird things that are going to be associated with extraterrestrial contact that are left out of the side of the stories that eventually make it to us. Uh, and examples are going to be, you know, Betty Hill, the two aliens getting into an argument because one is always lending out their books to Earthlings. Uh, Barney Hill is going to be scared by these aliens who he described as wearing Nazi-like uniforms and is protected by a red-headed Irishman with a dog. Uh, Betty Andreessen is going to see basically a phoenix that rises from the ashes. Travis Walton is going to be scared when he sees these aliens. 
And then when three come back, it's two men and a woman, and they've got long, blonde hair, and they're humans, and they're wearing basically 1950s fishbowl uniforms, you know, space suits. And he thinks it's the same ones. They change the way that they project to him because he's so scared. Nothing is going to be normal in the uh, Indrid Cold case, but, you know, Woodrow uh, Derenberger uh, basically described different shaped UFOs that literally came to Earth with the sole purpose of moving things around in people's houses. They were more a trickster spirit than than an alien intelligence. And so there's all these weird things that are even in the you know the popular acceptable by the media extraterrestrial cases or maybe I shouldn't use the word extraterrestrial but alien cases that are edited because they're just so strange. And in a way the inter dimensional or the ultra-terrestrial theory tries to to fill this hole. Now, like I said, I have a problem with the, the extraterrestrial hypothesis. I just accept, and I, I realize that I'm a good chance that I could be wrong, that space is just the distance between planets that or suns and galaxies is just too distant to be overcome. And if that's so, as far out and strange and bizarre as this idea that these things that we're seeing is, if they are some sort of unexplained phenomena that makes more sense to me, that they come from another dimension or some sort of state here in this dimension than they do come from outer space. And I completely get this idea that I don't know what I'm talking about. I, I don't. I'm, I'm a social scientist. I'm a history major. But I, I do have some pretty strong beliefs about time and space and distance. And I'm sure someone will say, well, Dave, just imagine if you think it takes a lot of energy to go from star to star in space, imagine what type of energy it would take to go from dimension to dimension. And I'm sure if it exists, and I'm, I'm just saying in my personal opinion, it's more, than, more likely than the extraterrestrial hypothesis, then, you know, if it exists, I guess that I get it would probably be a lot of energy, but it's it's all going to be hypothetical. That said, we're going to talk about uh, I want to talk more about this theory probably next week, but I want to talk about three of the greatest or most known, most published uh, UFO researchers in the the 70s, 60s, 70s, and 80s who were, who basically came to the point where they abandoned the extraterrestrial hypothesis 
and accepted versions of this ultra-terrestrial uh, ultra hypothesis. And this uh, is an idea that whatever this event, it all seems to be connected. Ghosts, Sasquatch, UFOs, aliens. And it's something either multidimensional or so, or in some way lives beyond our perceived consciousness on the earth. And when it does pierce this veil and it does get seen and interact with this world, our imaginations, our grasp for sanity, our, panic, our, our pattern recognition portion of our brain gives it some sort of description or some sort of cloaking so that it looks like um, something that we could accept and why it's culture. Whether it's, you know, in the last decade, little gray aliens or, you know, Martians before or fae or ghosts, that what we're seeing is just so alien that even our photography, it shows up in some sort of acceptable version, no matter how far out it is. And to me, that sounds so Lovecraftian. So as we dig into the theory more next week, I want to talk a little bit about the three men who proposed it. Uh, J. Allen Hynek, Jacques Vallée, and John Keel. Now, if you do not recognize those names, uh, the thing is that they've all in some form been in modern media. J. Allen Hynek is a very fictionalized version in History Channel's Project Blue Book. He also is appears as himself in uh, Steven Spielberg's Close Encounters of the Third Kind. So he's the, when the aliens land in Colorado, he is the scientist with the beard smoking the pipe, wearing the, you know, the, the scientific coat. Uh, Jacques Vallée is who uh, Spielberg based the um, the Lacombe character, the French uh, astronomer from that movie. And we see John Keel in a very, very sort of John changed version. In fact, it changed his name. John Klein in the Mothman Prophecies. Mothman Prophecies definitely is probably the best known, I'm sure it's probably the best selling book that Keel ever wrote. Um, but, you know, you just can't have Richard Greer dress up as this UFO nutcase who he basically French kisses conspiracy theories in the, uh, you know, out in the public. So when they made the movie, they imply they've changed him to like a Wall Street uh, journal or a Washington Post writer uh, and a Pulitzer Prize winner. But that's not who Keel was. So let's start a little bit with Hynek. Jan Hynek was, is, was a, a physicist or an astronomer, a very scientific mind. He is the one who basically came up with the Close Encounters system. And he was hired for Blue Book and the previous projects, Sign and Grunge, or uh, 
where he was not grunge, uh, grudge, excuse me, not grunge, where he was basically hired by the Air Force to debunk UFOs. And he went through and debunked quite a few of them. And he uses the very scientific approach. But eventually he's finding things he just can't disprove. And things like he meets Lonnie Zamora, who is probably the most reputable alien witness ever. And the man obviously saw, thought he saw something. He saw something. He experienced something. And this really changed what was a professional skeptic into a true believer. In fact, Hynek's name was associated with some of the uh, the Air Force's most unusual or sort of ridiculous uh, explanations, including uh, the famed swamp gas. But he began to realize that these people were seeing something. And so he, as an astronomer, basically accepted, because he had no other choice that was believed, that these were aliens, extraterrestrials. But he began finding holes in that. And so he needed to look for more. Now, Jacques Vallée, who is, of the three men, the only one that's still alive, I believe he's in his mid-late 80s, living in San Francisco area now. Jacques Vallée um, is Hynek's protege. And so these two are actually going to correspond with each other and meet and, and be friends. And Vallée, again, did see something as a child. He didn't know what it was, but he saw something over his house in France as a child. And that intrigued him, but he didn't really think that they were extraterrestrial. And he thought, he, he becomes uh, a researcher, a, a scientist, and he comes across a radar recording of something entering the Earth's orbit and beginning to be, to orbit the Earth. Now, he is thinking that it's some sort of meteorite or something natural. But he is shocked when his supervisor basically destroys the, the evidence and basically tells him not to ever mention this. And, and again, I don't know what happened, but I'm, I'm not going to say Valet was a, a liar. So he starts researching aliens and becomes under Hynek's tutelage the premier I mean, I mean he's a big enough UFO hunter that the Spielberg basically models the main character or one of the main characters of Close Encounters after him but Hynek and Valet are scientists in their heart they are believers, and we all know believers can be sort of swayed, but they are scientists, and so they come across ways to research, to interview, to document what is happening when these people report something. And as he goes on, and we'll talk more about this next week, Valet realizes 
the evidence of what they're seeing, he believes that something does not support that they are extraterrestrials, that they are some other origin. And when he starts publishing this, it was badly explained to me as a young child that these are elves. And that's not what he's saying. That's not what Heineck is saying. He's saying that some sort of experience is happening to us that has happened to our ancestors that our ancestors labeled as elves. And that it's the same thing that we label as UFO and flying saucer people. And why he came up with this, he came up with five solid reasons, which I think kind of overlap, to be honest. We'll talk a little bit about last week, or, or next week, excuse me. Then we last we've got is John Keel. I love John Keel. I love me a, a good John Keel story. But John Keel is going to be different than Heineck and Valet in that he is not a scientist. He has a background as a reporter. So that's some good and bad. First of all, it makes him a good writer. I mean, Keel's just a fun writer. I like reading his stuff. The other thing is, in a pre-Google era, where you had to go to these places, these libraries slash newspapers, and do look things up and microfish, he knew how to research. He was a darn good traditional old style microfish researcher and when he became rich enough to afford to pay people to do it he paid people good people to do that so he's able to get a lot of first-hand events in obscure newspapers throughout the country and knows how to dig at them probably better than almost any of the researchers at this time He's not necessarily going to be, and I love Keo, but he's not necessarily going to be the best interpreter of his research. The other advantage as a newspaper person is Keo knows how to talk to these other people. The stringers and the editors and the small town gazettes, he's one of them. He knows how to talk to them, get them to open up about things that might be a taboo secret about their town. Now, like I said, he is not always the best interpreter. And he is not beyond telling his half of the story, or telling half the side of the story, if it supports his half and is good. Uh, it's a good story. Uh, in one of his books, he talks about how this young, hotshot uh, scientist, Carl Sagan, is just mathematically saying, it's almost impossible for there not to be intelligent life somewhere else in the galaxy. And he cites his quote and goes on. He does not quote that, you know, Sagan also said, despite that, it would also be almost impossible for them to reach Earth. So, yes, um, you got to take Keel with a grain of salt. He's very much a conspiracy. He's very much a believer. And he's very much a storyteller. 
And this isn't knocking the guy. Again, I don't know how many times I'm going to say this on the show. I like him, but he, he is what he is. Uh, and you notice that his stories go on in time. They become more polished and they become more uh, specific. And, and so his stories, his stories may not change, but they become a little bit more embellished. And, and again, I don't have a problem with that as I think of Keel as a storyteller, not a scientist. But it's going to become apparent to him because of strange things. He's you know, one of the first people to encounter the men in black. He has this story about uh, seeing out of the corner of his eye these sort of purple blobs in a field. Uh, and it turns out later a dog is killed there, disappears, and he thinks that the, the blobs got it. But as he puts these things together, he definitely believes this is something more than psychological. That it is physical. And one of the things he uses in the Mothman prophecy is, I think it's, it's a type of conjunctionitis. I think it's colleg conjunctitis, where these people's eyes are basically become bloodshot and blood vessels and burn because they've been exposed to ultraviolet light. And he believes this is coming from these alien contacts. He believes that the Mothman is some sort of creature that's associated with this experiment or situation, but at the same time, isn't necessarily traveling in these spaceships. And so he too, like uh, Heineck and Valet, discard this theory that these are things from outer space, but rather they are things from this dimension or another dimension that are so beyond the human perception that they come up as gods, or in his words, an ultra-terrestrial. Now, we're going to dive in next week when I talk about this, is we're going to talk a little bit about uh, what the ultra-terrestrial theory is and what these things might be, but also the five reasons Valet gave for rejecting the extraterrestrial uh, hypothesis. All right, hey, so uh, we will be uh, I'll be talking some cool stuff with DB in just a bit, and I don't have to be a psychic to know that. And uh, we'll talk more about ultra-terrestrials next week, unless they take me away. spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster Kid Radio. Hear your host, Derek M. Cook, and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classics and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies. Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher, or visit monsterkidradio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster Kid Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Price, and Joel Hodson. Listen to discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival. Classic monsters, modern talk, and the head of Rondo Hatton, only on Monster Kid Radio.
everyone. It's me, DB, and Dave, here to talk about the dungeons and or the dragons. And this week we're talking about, uh, geez, we're talking, we're talking about the astral plane. The astral plane. Yeah. So, Dave, what do you know about the astral plane? It exists. <laughs> okay. So I have to admit, I, I mean, <clears throat> I don't use the astral plane a lot in my stories uh-huh. or in my games. But then again, um, I, I never played like Spelljammer. Uh, but so the main thing that I've ever used it for is like uh, where the, the Gathinki come from. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Cool. I yeah no no I I've I've had uh, campaigns in the past where you have to go like carve off some chunk of a dead god for some spell focus, and uh, you you uh, you know just you go through if okay the astral plane. It's the best way I've ever heard it described. It's the backstage for the multiverse it's like if the multiverse was a stage the inner planes the outer planes the prime material planes um it's it's the backstage it is seeable and interactable on the first level of every outer plane uh it i believe it doesn't necessarily interfere with a lot of inner planes but it may touch a bunch of quasi planes And it's kind of like this place that you're just like out of sync with reality in this gray mist in the prime material plane. But you can travel to the prime material plane through the astral uh, realms. (laughs) It's, I don't know, it's... It's sort of like the back door. Yeah, yeah, it's it's kind of like a quick way. Um, it's 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 like a shorter distance, and everything's kind of connected. And you could use it for sailing ships or surfing, like the Silver Surfer. Uh, if you enter through a uh, like an astral gate, you will have a silver tether. When you come out, there'll be an astral pool, and it's kind of like a, a big like. 10 to 30 foot diameter puddle of mercury kind of is the best way I've described it in the past. And then everything is kind of gray and hazy and you have like dead gods slowly rotting off in the distance and you have like floating cities and uh, big giant spheres of uh, crystal that when you go through those spheres, you're then in wild space and then in wild space, then you can go to prime material planes that's another way to do it. And then there's also just like uh, taking a potion of astral projection and, you know, I can never remember which one's which. One of them, your meat body stays in uh, tethered to the prime material plane or wherever you're projecting from. Or in the other one, you just like jump. And I can't remember which one's which. I believe they're both spells or potions or whatevs. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know what it kind of reminded me of? What's that? 
it is uh, nowhere for all, in uh, the Marvel universe. Yeah, yeah. Where you've got this dead god that you can sort of pick things from and harvest and. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, no, and uh, it's. Oh man, uh, it's it's uh. Its effects on time are almost slowed to a stop. A thousand years in the astral plane will only feel like a day to the traveler. Yeah. Be some and, problems with that. Yeah, and if you're if you're just, I mean, yeah, it can make some interesting things for for a game. But if you're going to make basically mining for organs of a dead god, you could basically do anything. You can make all your potions out of this, or oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, and um, there are also going to be all kinds of creatures that live out in this kind of empty space. There are uh, pre-human, humanoid, uh, uh, warlike race known as the Githyanki, or uh, you said it differently earlier. I can't remember how you said it. Uh, I think that you probably pronounced it closer to... Okay. The way it was oh, meant I, to be. I, 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 don't, I don't think it matters, honestly. Just as everyone knows what we're talking about, which are, like I believe, like six foot uh, with uh, yellowy skin. Um, and they are wear silvery armor, have silvery swords, and worship a lich queen. Last I knew. I don't know what's, if it's changed or anything like that, so... <laughs> yeah, but they are set up uh, in some of the most recent 5e as a playable race. Okay. All right. All right. And, yeah, as I said before, there's crystal spheres, and at the edge of uh, the crystal spheres, when you go through it, you are actually going into, like, something quite kind of like... Oh, I don't know. I want to call it, like, a... Um, a realm. You end up going into the solar system of a realm, and each realm has a different style of inside of its crystal sphere because they're all different places. I don't know how to describe that other than that. <laughs> no, that's. I think, and I, I think that's a good way to explain it. And then I think there's reasons that they maybe want to keep this a little vague and. And mysterious. Yeah, yeah. Uh, other things about it is there's no subjective gravity. You pick your down and which way you fall. Time, you know, as we say, it's timeless. Um, and spells and spell-like abilities take no time to cast. That's like any anything that would normally take like, you know, a round or two to cast, it's like, bop, it's there. <laughs> So that's that's something nice about it, but I mean everyone could do that too. So yeah, yeah, so what what you can use can be used against you. Yeah, yeah, and there's uh, astral researchers, astral whales, astral dragons with tiny silver kobolds and uh, dress dread bleh, astral dreadnoughts, which are on the cover of one book or two. <laughs> Uh, I think any any book about like uh, planarial travel, or I believe the astral dreadnought is on the cover, which is the one-eyed creature with crab crab claws and big teeth. Um, yeah, it's 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 uh, 
supposed to be a gargantuan monstrosity and uh yeah 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 it's it's just something that lurks in astral space there's like big things that lurk in astral space that are not friendly <laughs> but i'm sure you could find things that lurk in astral space that are quite friendly of uh, all, all 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 alignments honestly but yeah uh food creatures brain collectors doors uh, some celestial, some fiends, some slatty, uh, divas. Uh, let's see, what else? Yeah, all kinds of stuff. Um, found all over the place. Spectral hounds are usually found with Githyanki communities as guard animals. And there's even deities out there. Dave, do you, do you know any of the uh, deities that are found in the astral plane? Not that I know. I'm. I'm. I would assume all deities have some sort of aspect of the astral plane, but no, neither that I could tell you off the top of my head. Well, three of my favorite are Bane, Ball, and Mercule. <laughs> but there's also a bunch of other ones who I'm not sure who they are. Um, yeah, I, I don't know who that is. Um. Let me, let me pull some stuff up here. Enki, uh, jewelers, blacksmiths. Okay, I, that doesn't make sense. Uh, who else? There is uh, Monder. Who's Monder? And why? Why? What? Bonder, ancient deity of rot, decay. Okay. Oh, I, 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 yeah, no, the gods that are out here are dead. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what my understanding <laughs> like, is, that most of the ones here are, are, it's, they're dead or they're, they will be resurrected. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, yeah, known dead, known dead deities. You know, it's like, yeah, it's like, oh, what deities actually live, though? It's like, yeah, it's a graveyard for deities. There's no real, like... Uh, and, and that's why I kind of think of it like nowhere. Yeah, yeah. And where there's this, this, this giant floating corpse of deities that you characters could, you know, maybe just like, you know, they in nowhere in the Marvel Universe, I think they, they uh, mine his, his, like, spinal fluid or something. Gotcha. You, but you could maybe the blood of a uh, dead god could be healing potions. Oh yeah, yeah. No, or uh, sleeping potions. <laughs> I was like, if you have a god that's known as like like Alutuya, uh, who's known as the Eternal Sleeper, um, who's in a state of induced slumber, um, like something like that. It's like, I don't know. You could. Just like, you know, um, dragons can be a source of a lot of different potions and a lot of different magical reagents, I imagine that a dead god could also be used in the same way as well. Oh, absolutely. Like, chunks of mercurial could probably be, you know, used for, like, necromancer supremes. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Or, or the bones could be used to make you know, magic weapons. Yeah, I was just thinking, or, or like, holy a weapons. sliver of a fingernail from uh, Carcius could, like, you know, be, like, really important to someone. 
but yeah, yeah, no, no. The astral plane, it's it's not empty. It's full of stuff. It's just so expansive that it just like seems empty. And um, you travel with your mind, if I remember properly. Your your mind is how you 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 move through the world. Uh, it may be based off of your wisdom. Uh, check with your dungeon master, of course. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. So unless it was like a homebrew, I'm I'm pretty sure that most scenarios or something come from a spell jammer with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, so you can either astral projection or by physically entering the plane are the two ways to deal with it. And if you do it through... Uh, trying to figure out which way it is. Astral projection was the safest way to travel, but still involved risk because you left your physical body behind. Um, but... Um, okay, while projecting your astral self... Connected to your physical body by a silver cord out behind your body for uh, three meters. And uh, only thing that can cut it is the will of God, silver sword, uh, powerful psychic wind. But the silver cord itself is fairly intangible. So, yeah, there's that bit for you. And, and that's pretty much I remember that from... Uh... The Gathinki. Yeah, yeah. And as well as it's kind of a standard belief, the, the silver cord is a standard belief among a lot of uh, New Agers on mm -hmm. who who honestly believe in uh, astral projection. So that was, you know, taken from, uh, you know, uh, beliefs of, of uh, people who believe in the paranormal. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Something really interesting I came upon when I was reading this stuff, though, is something called planeural forks. Do you know about planeural forks? I believe that that's when you eat something that with your fork on your plate. Uh, no, no, it's oh. it's. It's a uh, uh, kind of like a uh, – you use a tuning fork made out of a specific substance, okay. and it can help you, like, uh, find a portal, a plane, or an entranceway. Uh, it's kind of like – Color pools, ethereal curtains, and that kind of stuff, all kinds of uh, stuff. And it's like, um, let's see, what did, what, what was it for? Uh, see if I can find this again. Okay. And for the astral plane, you needed a quartz, uh, a, a, a quartz tuning fork tuned to B. And uh, you look for uh, swirling ethereal gray. But if you wanted to go to uh, Limbo, you would use a nickel tuning fork tuned to C, and you'd look for jet black swirling curtains. Um, if you wanted to go to... Beckonus, you would... 
use a... Oh, uh, yeah. And I'd say you're going to the ethereal plane. You'd use a, a, a glass tuning fork, tuned to B, and you would look for a spiraling white uh, energy plane. But yeah, no, no, it's interesting. And, and that's where I can see you, like your bards could come in handy. Yeah, 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 yeah. Or uh, your wizards who carry around all kinds of like stuff. Because yeah. <laughs> they, they've got all these like different ones for like all these different uh, various parts of different planes and stuff like that. And yeah, no, it's 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 crazy stuff. <laughs> you can get all the way down to like parts of the nine hells using this method and <laughs> And if this is your campaign, yeah. it's a really useful. Yeah. Uh, even if it's like a one shot in a campaign, but I just don't think it comes up that often. No, uh, no, no. I can see it being something like it's it's fairly complicated and um could be used as a device for more experienced planial travelers who are helping out your characters. Um, but yeah, yeah, no, while we were going over uh, stuff for, um, uh, goodness, the astral plane, uh, I, I, I ran across something on one page that said quartz B. And I'm like, quartz B, what's that even? But yeah, no, it's, it's this concept. It's kind of like, um, like people in other, okay, like, uh, planial travel, planial shift uh, used to be done with like very specific components or keys or whatever. And I like the idea of like using tuning forks as opposed to keys. And, um, you know, maybe there are still uh, material components that you have to use with it. But I don't know. I, I think like the concept of using like material, uh, like a Tuning forks made of various types of material uh, tuned to certain like pitches and stuff like that. That's a really cool effect, especially for something as kind of ethereal as a, a, a gateway to another world. Yeah, no, I think that's a great idea. Yeah. Anyway, uh, anything you've been watching, doing, having fun with lately there, Dave? Uh, so I did finish up um, oh, the peripheral. Okay. Which a great season and something definitely very Lovecraftian is on Amazon is the rig. Okay. Which is a Scottish series, so you got to get past this brogue. Uh -huh. But it's basically a um, oil rig in the uh, uh, off the coast of Scotland, and it releases something trapped beneath the earth. Interesting. And it's both because it's a big rig, it's it's, but it's a small area. I know it's both spacey and claustrophobic, but Ooh. good good slow burn a slow burn, uh, Lovecraftian horror. That's cool. That's really cool. I like that a lot. Yeah, uh, it's, yeah. it's only six episodes, so. Okay. Well, that's not too much. That's not too hard, and it's on Amazon. You say? Amazon Prime. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. I have not been watching anything very uh, Lovecraftian. I'm trying to think of if I've been playing any games that are Lovecraftian. It's like when I play them, they become Lovecraftian. Yes. And I'll put mods in them so that they'll become more and more Lovecraftian. Uh, my, my, my current uh, setup for Project Zomboid is I'm playing with a bunch of Silent Hill mods on. 
Um, not quite Lovecraftian, but, you know, cosmic horror kind of stuff. Um, or just dark, dark, anyway. Uh, I'm trying to think of anything else that I've been doing. And yeah, no, no, it's just a lot of like getting the house back into shape and getting everything all set and just getting ready for colder parts of winter. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, hey, everyone. Thank you so much again for listening to us. Uh, if you have any question for us, if you want to send us anything, let us know. Uh, check us out at pgttcm.com. That's how you can figure out how to contact us. We're also on the Facebook at People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. Uh, KZOM uh, Radio. We've also got the, uh, what do you call that? Uh, YouTube. And we generally release these kinds of episodes on YouTube. And join us uh, twice a week as we listen to old radio plays, old pulp novels, old various stuff. So it's audiobooks twice a week and this somewhere in the middle. All right. Thank you again, everyone, for listening. And check us out. Support our shops that we've got on our store or uh, on our website. And anything you have to say before we take off, Dave? No, but we'll be seeing you next time. All right. We'll see you.